0: Uchigasqua, you too wish to see my brother. But are you sure you would want him to see you? Coming down the road,
1: there was a figure in black walking towards the house. <laughs> It's time for
2: the Apple Seat, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. Such a pleasure to be with you today and, of course, to be with you every time you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. We've got a great hour for you today. And to think about the stories that are coming up, ask yourself the question, do you ever have days when you feel invisible? No matter what you say, seems as though people don't even notice you're there. What would it be like to be completely invisible unseen by anyone today we'll hear the story of a boy who is completely invisible and one young woman's search to win his hand it's a native american version of of the Cinderella story, and this version will be told for you by Stephanie Benito We know you're going to love it, along with all the other stories we have to share today. You're going to hear Richard Martin retell a Scottish folktale called Death in the Nut. Kind of an ominous title there, isn't it? Next, Joseph Bruchak is going to bring us a tale of Bill Greenfield, an Adirondack tall tale character, and how Bill's wife taught him a thing or two. And speaking of tall tale characters, we'll bring you a Joel Ben Izzy story called Paula Bunyan. Yeah, you heard that right. Not Paul Bunyan, but Paula Bunyan. All of that coming up, and to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined to the studio by our assistant producer, Samantha Daines. Samantha, it's great to have you with us.
3: Good to be here.
2: We're going to hear a story from Stephanie benito right? Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me a little bit about this story.
3: Yeah, so this story is a Native American myth, um, and it's a kind of a Cinderella story, yeah. I guess I would say. Um, the, you know, the Cinderella story, we've heard it a million different ways. Yeah. Um, And this is kind of her version. And I like it, too, because it focuses on not just the the Cinderella character, but also the prince sort of archetype (laughs) character. And we get a little bit more insight into this version of the prince and, and what his life is like.
2: Yeah, you know, we get introduced, so many of us, to the version of Cinderella that you know, is perhaps most common to us, right? And, and often based on the Disney Cinderella. That yeah. We, you know, or, or often some variation of that tale. But it's a, this is a story that has hundreds of variations all over the world, some of them more alike than others and some of them with more differences than others. But this is a terrific one. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's Stephanie Benetto with The Invisible Boy here on The Appleseed.
0: There once was a boy who was invisible, like the wind. When he was a tiny baby, his mother could only find him by groping in the direction of his cries. If she wrapped him in a blanket, the blanket disappeared, and if she put clothes on him, the clothes too became invisible. When he turned 12 years old, became a man and was allowed to hold his first spear, the spear disappeared in his hands. And so at a very early age, he became a very great hunter because he could creep up to the wiliest and fiercest animal and sink his spear in its flank before it even knew what struck it, man or thunderbolt. He also became a great warrior because he could walk through the village of the enemy in broad daylight and never be discovered. A couple of years after he was born, his parents had another child, a little girl, and to their great surprise, they discovered that of all the people in the village, she was the only one who could actually see her brother. The two children grew up together, and when their parents died, The Invisible Boy built a beautiful wigwam beside a lake. And that's where they lived. In that village, there were many young girls who weren't married. And they all wanted to marry the Invisible Boy. Because the wife of a great hunter would never be hungry and the wife of a great warrior would never be afraid of the enemy. The problem was the sister. She said nobody could marry her brother unless first she could see him. So, every afternoon, the girls of the village would wait outside the wigwam of the invisible boy, hoping that today, maybe today, when the men return from the hunt, one of them would actually see him and become his bride. The sister would wait with them. As soon as the men came out of the forest, she would point and say, There's my brother! Can't you see him clear as day? He's walking beside the other men. I just don't understand that nobody can see him. A few of the girls, a very few, would admit that they saw nothing at all. But many of the young girls would say, Oh, yes, I see him. And he's the handsomest boy in all of the village. But what's he wearing, the sister would ask. Because he left so early this morning and the weather has changed. I'm afraid he was cold. What is he wearing? She was so tricky that the girls always fell into her trap. Some said he was wearing the same clothing as the other boys of the village, only richer and finer. Others said that he was wearing the furs of strange animals he'd hunted, or nothing at all, or even horns on his head. But whatever they said, the sister knew they were lying and could not really see him, and she would send them away. There was in that village a widower who had three daughters, the youngest of whom was sickly and weak. Her two older sisters treated her very badly. Bring us some water. Take taking Hurry you up? so long? Beating her Where's and calling her hand? names You're and making her do better. all the work Not and that. sometimes sometimes even burning her face and hands on purpose because they were very cruel. When her father came home in the evening and inquired about the new wounds on his youngest daughter's face, the two sisters would say, "Father, She acts as one who's lost her wits. Yes, father. She crashes into trees and falls into the fire no matter how hard we try to protect her. She is a burden to us, father. Yes, father. She's a burden to us. A burden. And the young girl would cower in the corner and say nothing because she was afraid of her sisters. She came to be called Uchigeasqua, which means she who is covered in scars. Both of her sisters had been to the wigwam of the Invisible Boy. When they came back, Uchigasqua said, Did you see him? Was he very handsome? Certainly we saw him. We saw him and he was so ugly that we refused to marry him. Yes, he was even uglier than you. Uglier than you. (laughs) Uglier than you. (laughs) And then, because they had nothing better to do they began to cut off all of Uchigayasquah's hair and throw it into the fire by handfuls. And pretty soon they were having such a good time at their cruel game that they forgot all about the invisible boy. But not Uchigayasquah. The next morning, when her sisters and her father were gone from the wigwam, she looked about for something to wear because all she owned were rags. When she couldn't find anything, she went out and took a piece of birch bark and she made herself a dress out of it. Then she took her father's old moccasins that were too big and full of holes and she walked through the village.
4: Look at her, look at her.
0: When the people saw her dressed like a crazy woman they started laughing and pointing and the children ran after her and threw rocks and taunted her.
4: Looks like a crazy How much
0: more they would have laughed if they had known where she was going. But you know where she was going. When she got to the wigwam of the invisible boy, the sister came out and said, Ah, Uchigiasquah, you too wish to see my brother. But are you sure you would want him to see you? Dressed as one who has lost her wits, with no hair, your face covered in scars, do you really want him to see you? Uchigiascoa looked down. "'I will go, if you tell me to,' she said. "'But I would have liked to try, just once, to see him.'" The sister looked at her for a long time. "'Come,' she said. She took her by the hand and she brought her into the wigwam. And there she heated some water over the fire. And with a soft cloth... Very gently she washed Uchigasqua's face and hands. And under her touch, all of Uchigasqua's scars disappeared as if by magic, leaving her skin smooth. Then she dressed her in a robe of thick white fur and was about to comb her hair when Uchigasqua said, Why do you mock me? You can see there is nothing for you to comb. My sisters have cut off all of my hair," Shh, said the sister, and she began to comb. And under her touch, Uchigasquas' hair grew out, thick and black and beautiful, all the way to her waist. "'Come,' said the sister. "'It's time for the men to return from the hunt.' And the two young girls left the wigwam. And right away the sister said, "'There's my brother. "'Can't you see him clear as day? "'He's walking by the shores of the lake. "'I don't understand that nobody can see him.' Uchigasquah turned to look. "'I see him. "'I really see him,' she said. "'But what's he wearing?' Because he left so early this morning and the weather has changed. I'm afraid that he was cold. What is he wearing? Well, he's wearing... He's wearing a tunic that seems to be cut from the rainbow. The sister smiled and said nothing. And pretty soon the invisible boy had reached them. He took Uchigasqua's hand in his and smiled into her eyes. I'm so glad that finally someone has found me, he said. I was getting lonely. From that day on, Uchigasqua lived with the Invisible Boy and his sister in their wigwam, and they were very happy together. But what about the two sisters? Some people said they were so jealous when they found out what happened to Uchigasqua that they fought with each other until they killed each other. But others say that the sister of the invisible boy turned one of them into a mosquito and the other one into a black fly. And that that is why we have mosquitoes and black flies in our forests today. And you must not think it was out of a desire for revenge. Oh no, because in their new bodies, the two girls continue doing exactly what they liked best, which was tormenting other people. So you see, Everybody in this story really did live happily ever after.
2: Stephanie Beneteau with a story called The Invisible Boy, just one of Hundreds of versions of the Cinderella story that exist in nations all over the world. And uh, I I like a story where everybody lives happily ever.
3: I was just thinking that. (laughs) I love how she says everybody gets to have a happy ending, even the mean sisters. It is nice when things just – that's what I love about stories and fairy tales is things just sometimes – Sometimes turn out perfectly they for everybody.
2: <laughs> I don't think I would like the ending that the sisters got. Right? No,
3: but you're not them.
2: That's and I think <laughs> is isn't that uh, one of the marvelous things about this story? Right, is that my happy ending might not be your happy ending, and even if we both got our happy endings mine would be different than yours. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Right? Yours would be different than mine. Yeah. What an interesting ending to really a fascinating story. You know, again, so many versions of the Cinderella story, this this notion of, of, uh, of faithfulness and finding true love and tests to go through and things like that. Yeah. It must be something that we think about everywhere
3: well i love too how he's invisible and it's sometimes the prince is just oh he's the prince you don't really know much about him except for (laughs) that he's the prince or that he's invisible but but uh only the one who's really right for him can see him i love that
2: ain't it the way the invisible boy told for you by stephanie beneteau a pleasure to listen to it here with samantha danes and of course with you samantha thanks
3: for joining me anytime
2: and of course there's a lot more coming up on the apple seed
3: you're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. And if you're just joining us, we heard The Invisible Boy, a story told for us by Stephanie Benetto. Coming up, stories from uh, Joseph Bruchak and Joel ben Izzy. But first, because we know that sharing memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites memories and stories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here's a memory of mine, of, well, let's call it a close encounter, shall we? It's uh, today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
3: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
2: Every time the edge comes off of the heat of summertime, in that season where autumn just hints at a desire to cool things off, I get hit with a memory, and in the memory I'm 10. And it's the last day of the year when it's going to be warm enough to sleep outside. Kent Bartholomew, one of our pals up the street, is having a big sleepover, and we're all invited. I'm there, and my brother Joe is there, and Daniel Jones is there, and Ryan Anderson is there, and Darren Dibb is there, and Kent's mom has bought a pizza for us and a big bottle of root beer, and by the time we're done eating, it's good and dark outside, and we're all excited, because not only are we going to sleep outside, but we're also going to sleep on the trampoline We all live within a couple of blocks of each other, and we've dragged our sleeping bags over to Kent's house, and in a big pile of kids, we hunker down now into those sleeping bags, and there we are, looking up into the Milky Way. A billion stars, and they look close enough to touch. And our bodies are warm down in our sleeping bags and our faces are cold in the early autumn night air. And it's a long time, as you can imagine, before we go to sleep. Someone tells a joke and someone admits he likes a certain girl and someone makes some, oh, I don't know, some bodily noise. And it's a long shot that anybody's going to go to sleep at all tonight. And there's giggling and shouting and more and more of it until suddenly the whole trampoline Goes completely silent. All at once, every giggle, every shout, instantly gone, like the flipping of a switch. Silence. Because above us, floating between us and the stars, is something. It, it's silent. It's covered with lights orange lights, red lights, blue lights. Some of them are blinking. And silently, this thing, whatever it is, moves across the whole sky it appears in the northwest and sails over us enormous and slowly silently disappears over the mountains east of us and from us not a word every one of us with his whole heart believes that the thing sailing over our heads is not from this world and every one of us with his whole heart believes that any word from any of us will break the spell and the thing will disappear. Maybe each guy on the trampoline even thinks he's the only one who sees it. I don't know, because nobody said a word again that night. That whatever it was left every one of us thinking who knows what and staring silently up at the sky, and one by one, every one of us fell asleep. In the morning, each kid rolled off the trampoline, dragged his sleeping bag behind him, and went home each one thinking that the universe was bigger and stranger than he had ever dreamed. And I have to tell you, there were a million plain old things that thing up in the sky could have been. It was lit up in exactly the same colors that light a lot of airplanes. It was following the path that airplanes often took out of the valley. The magic of that moment, as I think back on it, as each year turns summer to fall, is not that I can't explain it, it's the willingness, the eagerness, the desire that we all had to believe in something remarkable. The collective longing to experience something amazing together, the rush to hold our breaths together, giving ourselves completely over to a thing that we hoped might be possible. It's been a long time since I've been like that. I'm wiser in a lot of ways, deeper in a lot of ways, but boy, sometimes I miss the boy that on a summer night lay breathless beneath the enormous Milky Way, ready to believe just about anything.
3: The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
2: Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear from Richard Martin and Joseph Bruchac and Joel ben Izzy. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families, passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, through songs, the things we see on screen, and of course from radio and podcasts, and exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on the Apple Scene. I'm joined in the studio by Stuart Foster, one of our assistant producers and man, nobody listens to podcasts like Stuart
4: listens to podcasts. Stuart, <laughs> it's great to have you. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's true. My my gym hours are filled with podcast listening. <laughs> Isn't
2: that the way it is? You know, podcasts can insert themselves into pretty much every aspect of your
4: Yeah, uh, yeah. Life, it's right? true. They can really like I don't know. You can just listen to them as you're doing things, right? Which is one of the great appeals of radio in general, right? Is that they can fit into your life like that.
2: And of course, we're always grateful that you're listening to the Appleseed podcast, but there are a lot of great storytelling podcasts. There are a lot of great ways in the podcast world for great stories to get into you, Mm
4: -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And
2: Stuart has come to talk about one of those podcasts today. Stuart, what are we going to talk about?
4: We're talking about the illusionist, and that's spelled within A, not an I. Ah. Yeah, exactly. Uh It's kind of a play on words because, you know, you get these illusionists, right, people who are like magicians. But in this case, it is an illusion, like a reference to something, because this is a podcast about wordplay. It's a podcast about words. I was going to say, it's such
2: an appropriate title because it really, it's a podcast about the stories behind words. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Language and kind of how we build our cultures around language. Um, this particular podcast, I'm, I'm going to give you an example of one of the episodes that I loved the most episode 93. You guys can go and look (laughs) it up out there. It's called, it's about, it's an episode about gossip actually. Um, and they kind of talk about, well, how gossip works as a social tool for us. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing this one up is because like my, my in-laws are huge gossipers (laughs) are you listening
2: (laughs) Stewart's in-laws exactly the Uh, accusation has been levied I know
4: (laughs) and that's the thing like this podcast this specific episode helped me to view like my mother-in-law in in a a better light because I always like I always came to these family like outings and things and I was like man why are we why are we talking about all these other people they're not even here (laughs) but I listened to this podcast and I was like huh like Gossip comes it's kind of a social tool. It's a it's a means of opening up to one another. It's a means of explaining what we believe in and things like that. And and, and you learn
2: you, you get all kinds of great insights into that by listening to the illusion
4: Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And so that's that's kind of what this episode does. It goes through the history of the word gossip and why we use gossip in general. Wow.
2: Uh, you know, I I have a lot of consternation about gossip in my life. You know?
4: <laughs> I think we um, all do. I, I,
2: <laughs> and the consternation I have, and I, and again, as you say, I think this is probably something that everybody experiences. Right? Mm-hmm. Is I'll be having oh a, I'll be having a productive conversation with my wife about something that's. Bothering me, or or, or some some aspect of something that involves somebody else, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we wind up talking about that person, and 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 I always have a really hard time drawing the line on when something crosses the line into being gossip. Yeah, right?
4: yeah. yeah. Being,
2: and and so, any insights I can get, I'm I'm all for.
4: I know you you should uh, definitely take a look at this at this episode. I would so we're going to learn it. about
2: gossip, but we're going to learn about. Uh, all kinds of things related to language mm-hmm. right and in in the gossip episode for example we're going to go into gossip through the word gossip yeah right yeah, yeah. and we're gonna learn all kinds of uh, you know the stories of how words came to be and and the position that they fill in the conversations that we have every day mm-hmm. that that that's that that can be fascinating stuff.
4: Yeah, and it can really change the way you view things, like it did for me and my you know and my in-laws. It <laughs> it can change the way that you speak. It can change the way that you uh, view words and huh. and the way that you construct your own language. So
2: is that I got to go out on a limb and say did that just change your heart or did it influence a discussion that you had with your in-laws?
4: Oh, that's a good question. I feel like it changed my heart yeah. mostly because yeah. I could take a look at like. The moments where you know my family takes part in those types of conversations sure. and say oh like This is how they are connecting, right? Like different people connect in different ways, and this is one of the ways that they do it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it changed my heart a little bit, I think.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's what we rely on stories to do, Mm -hmm.
4: isn't it? We
2: rely on stories not only to entertain and delight us, but also to amplify our understanding of the world and to change uh, where we – to help us change where we need to change. Mm -hmm. And learning about language, learning about words and language can perform that same function. I know that it does for me. When I come to a greater understanding of the words that I use, gosh, I I get more careful. (laughs) Yeah,
4: it's crazy how much your words influence who you create as yourself, right? Like language is very much tied to culture and identity, and so it's so important to understand, like, what we say and how people interpret it and and how you know that changes through time and through <laughs> the social groups that you're in whatever it is
2: yeah yeah and and i find myself in conversations sometimes saying well i i don't have the words but you know what i mean right mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> uh, often i see the other person's face going well all I have are your words. So no, in fact, I do not know what you mean. If you do not have the words, I don't know what you mean. Uh (laughs) Well, The Illusionist is the name of the podcast. Again, you got to remember to spell that with an A, not illusion like a magical illusion, but illusion like a reference to something, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a podcast all about words and their stories. Stuart Foster, thanks so much for bringing us a favorite podcast today.
4: Of course, love to.
2: Of course, we're always interested in the ways that stories come into our lives, whether that's through great books or songs or the things we see on screen or radio and podcasts. We're always thankful that you're with us here on the Apple Scene. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Always a pleasure to chat with our pal, Stuart Foster. We'll have him back. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear from Richard Martin and Joseph Brushak and Joel ben Izzy with a story of Paula Bunyan. You won't want to miss a word of any of those tales. I'm Sam Payne.
3: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
2: It's great to have you with us today on The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Richard Martin. It's a story that has a lot of versions. Richard tells it as a Jack tale. And it's about a day that death comes to call. In fact, the story is called Death in the Nut. And uh, here it is. Richard Martin on The Appleseed.
1: Once upon a time, there was a boy named Jack. Now, Jack? he lived, he lived with his mother, his old mother, his old mother who looked after Jack well. She would cook his food, she'd wash his clothes, and in the evenings the two would sit together by the fire and his mother would tell him stories. She would tell him the tales he needed to know. But one day, Jack came downstairs in the morning and his mother was not there where he expected her to be. He went into her bedroom. He went into her bedroom and he found his mother lying in her bed. Mother? Mother, what's up? Jack? I don't rightly know what's up, but There's something wrong with me, and I don't know what's going to happen. Jack, he tried to do things in the house, he tried to do this, he tried to do that, but poor Jack, he he was so worried in the end, he felt he just had to get out of that house for a while, and he went out into the garden was Walking round the garden, it was a day in October and as he walked under the nut tree he saw the nuts hanging on the tree and Jack picked up a, an old stick and threw it up into the tree and knocked the nuts down and picked them up and put them in his pocket, put some more in his pocket and then just as Jack picked another nut up, he saw coming down the road, coming down the road, there was a figure in black walking towards the house. And as that figure in black came closer and closer to the house, Jack saw it was death. Death. Death coming for his Poor old mother, Jack, Jack wasn't going to let that happen. He picked up that stick and without thinking anymore, he just ran at death and he hit death and hit death and hit death with that stick. And each time Jack hit death, death became a little bit smaller and smaller and smaller and Jack carried on hitting and hitting and hitting until death was so small that Jack picked death up from the ground and took one of those nuts and he squeezed that nut so the two halves of the nut opened and he pushed death into that nut and had him trapped. Now death wasn't going to get his mother and Jack went down to the sea and he stood there on the sandy beach and he looked out over the great grey ocean and he took that nut and he threw it as far out to sea as he could. And then, feeling so much better Jack went home and he opened the door and there was his mother who had just got out of bed. I I don't know what it is, Jack, but, oh, I feel all right now. Oh, oh, Jack, and he took his mother by the hands and he danced around the room with her and he kissed her. He said, Mother, Mother, I'll tell you what we're going to do. You stay here, you get the fire going, I'll go into town and I'll... I'll go to the butchers and I'll get the biggest piece of bacon I can find and we'll have a celebration meal. And off he went. And Jack, he walked to the butchers and he said to the butcher, Butcher, give me the biggest piece of bacon you've got in your shop. Jack. Jack, I I would if I could, but I don't rightly know what's gone wrong today. Do you know, I've just been out the back and tried to kill a pig. Whether it's the knife keeps slipping out of my hand or the pig runs away, but I I just have not been able to kill an animal all morning. Uh, And I haven't got a piece of meat in the shop. Well, well, said Jack, if, you know, if, if you've got something to celebrate, you can celebrate with, without a piece of meat. I'll, I'll go and get myself a nice cabbage and we'll eat that because I've got something to celebrate today. And Jack left the butchers and he walked back home. And he walked into his garden. And there was a big cabbage growing there. That's the one we'll take. And he got out his knife and tried to cut but whether it was the knife was blunt or the cabbage stalk was very, very strong, he could not cut that cabbage. I'll oh, Pull the thing out and he pulled and he pulled and pulled. But he could not pull that cabbage out of the earth. And in the end, Jack went back into the house empty-handed. And there was his mother, in front of the fireplace, but there was no fire burning. Jack, she said. And she looked at him and, Jack, I don't know what it is. But I can't, I can't get the, the wood to catch it all today. And where's the meat? And where's the cabbage, Jack? Jack, what has been happening today? And Jack sat down with his mother and he told her all that had happened under the nut tree. And she looked at her son and said, Jack, do you not remember the tales I've told you? Jack, each of us has a time in their life when death must come, and you've taken that time away from me. And until you give me that time back, I reckon nothing right can happen in this world. And Jack took his mother by the hands, and he looked deep into her eyes and he kissed her tenderly, and he bade her farewell. And Jack went out of the house and down to the sea, and he stood on the sandy beach, and he looked over the great grey ocean. And there, on the seventh wave, he saw it, the nut. And the nut came closer and closer to the shore until at last it was on the sand at his feet. And Jack bent down and he picked it up. And he looked at that nut and he put it between his hands and he crushed it. And he threw, he threw the pieces on the sands and went back to his house. His cold house, his empty house. And there he found his mother lying on her bed, her eyes closed in death. Jack called his friends, Jack called his neighbours and together they dug a grave for Jack's mother in the earth. They laid her in her grave. They went back into the house and that evening they ate and they drank and they told tales of Jack's mother. They told tales of her life and Jack told tales that she had told him. And then, that night, Jack went to bed for the first time in the cold house alone. But the next morning, the next morning as the sun shone through Jack's bedroom window, he woke up. He took some money and he took a few things and Jack, he made a bundle and he tied that bundle on the end of the stick and he put that stick on his shoulder and Jack, he went out of the front door, out into the world, ready for the rest of his life.
2: Death in the Nut from Richard Martin here on The Appleseed. Up next, a tall tale about Bill Greenfield, a popular tall tale character of the Adirondack Mountains where Joseph Bruschak hangs his hat. Joseph Bruchek, the wonderful storyteller, going to bring you a story called How Bill's Wife Taught Him a Thing or Two. Happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed.
5: In most cases, Bill Greenfield's quick wits were always enough to get him out of any scrape. But there was at least one time when Bill's wife had to get him out of trouble. It seems that Bill was down to the store and, as usual, yarnin' about the wonderful things he'd done and seen. Most of the locals were only half-listening, having heard Bill all too many times before. But then a little boy come up and started to listen in, and Bill could see that boy was just hangin' on his every word. Well, "'Let me tell you, son,' Bill said, "'about the way it is up on my farm.' I have got some animals there that really beat all. If you was to come out to my farm and see them, you would think that your visit was the most wonderful thing you ever done." By now that little boy was sitting wide-eyed at Bill's feet. "'Tell me about them, Mr. Greenfield,' he said. That was all Bill needed to hear. "'Well,' Bill said, "'first of all, there's my chickens. You've heard of your Rhode Island Reds and your Plymouth Rocks and your white leghorns, I am sure. That little boy nodded. Yes, I sure have. Well, Bill said, what I have up to my farm is none of those. I have an entire new breed of chicken that I have bred myself, and I call them Greenfield Giants. Those chickens are so big that one drumstick would feed the whole volunteer fire department. And after we've eaten one of them eggs, which when cooked up makes up enough scrambled eggs for a month, we cut those shells in half lengthwise and sell them as porcelain bathtubs. Those chickens are so big that when I feed them, I have to scatter the corn up on the roof of the barn. Well, they're so tall, they don't go around scratching in the barnyard like ordinary fowl. They just walk around in the woods, eating the acorns off the top of the oak trees. Those sure are big chickens, that little boy said. <laughs> Why, well, if you think those chickens are something, Bill Greenfield said, you ought to seem a dog. That dog is the smartest dog that ever walked on four legs. Now, most people, they talk about a smart dog, they just mean it can fetch and shake hands and the like. That dog of mine don't bother with such things. That dog can add, subtract, and multiply. It knows the names of all the presidents, and it can recite the preamble to the Constitution in French. We would have set it off to college if it wasn't for the fact that it would have gotten homesick being away so long. The only thing it can't seem to do is tell a lie, and so we decided not to let it run for Congress. Yep, that dog is so smart it can teach school. That's the smartest dog I ever heard of, the little boy said. Well, you ought to seem a horse then. That horse is the fastest horse that ever lived. Only reason I don't ride it into town too often is that it's so fast it wears out 10 pairs of horseshoes in a week, and I can't afford to keep it shot if I ride it all too often. It's so fast if you was to ride it around the mountain, you'd meet yourself coming back the other way. That horse is so fast I can ride it from here to Boston and back in an hour. That must be the fastest horse that ever was. By the time Bill had finished talking, that little boy figured that Bill Greenfield was about the greatest man who'd ever lived to have such wonderful animals as that. And when the boy left, Bill sat there for a while by the stove feeling real proud of himself for having such an admirer. Bill, the storekeeper said, that little fellow there believed every word you said. It's just going to break his heart if he finds out you was just lying to him. Sure, Bill Greenfield said, he ain't a going to find out any such thing. Well, he'll probably forget all about what I told him before the end of the day. When Bill went home, he pretty much forgot himself about all those tall tales he'd told that little boy until the weekend rolled around right in early Saturday morning, he looked out the window and what do you suppose he saw? There was that little boy just coming down the lane. Oh, my Lord, said Bill to his wife, who had just finished making a batch of her famous sugar cookies. Here comes that little boy I was yarning to down at the store the other day. He's walked all the way out here from town just to see my chickens that are so tall they eat the nuts off the trees. My dog's so smart it can teach school and my horses so fast it can go from here to Boston and back in an hour. It's going to break his heart when I can't show him none of those things. What am I going to do? Bill... Mrs. Greenfield said, I knew your stories were going to get you into trouble one of these days. You just hide under the bed and I'll see if I can pull the fat out of the fire for you. Maybe I can even teach you a thing or two about storytelling. Bill crawled under the bed and got hid just as the little boy knocked. Wiping her hands on her apron, Mrs. Greenfield answered the door. Good day, ma'am, said the little boy. I come out here from town to see if Mr. Greenfield could show me those big chickens of his. Well, I'm sorry, young man, Mrs. Greenfield said, but Bill's not here right now, and we have sent those chickens down to my brother's in Charlton. We ran all out of chicken food, and my brother's got a lot of acorns in his oak trees. They can eat them off there in the meantime. Well, the little boy looked downcast for a minute, but then he brightened up. Can I see that dog of Mr. Greenfield's that's so smart it can teach school? I'd just love to hear how it can talk French. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you for the second time, young man, said Mrs. Greenfield, but it seems the school teacher over in Galway took sick this week. That dog's going to be over there for the next ten days or so of substitute teaching. Well, that little boy looked sad, but then he smiled again. Well? he said. I guess I can just see that fast horse of his then. Mrs. Greenfield shook her head. I hate to tell you this, she said, but Bill took that horse. As I said, we've run out of feed, and so Bill just left to go to Boston and get some. He said he had another errand to run down in New York City right after that, so he probably won't be back for at least three hours. But I'll tell you what I can show you. I got a cookie jar back here that is dangerously full, and I think maybe you can help me with it. That little boy brightened right up. I'd be happy to help you, ma'am, he said. By the time he left, after helping out by eating an adequate amount of those sugar cookies, for which Mrs. Greenfield was rightfully famous, that little boy thought his visit out to the Greenfield farm was the most wonderful thing he'd ever done. And Bill Greenfield, who had to stay hidden under that bed and did not get even a single one of those cookies, did indeed learn a lesson that day about storytelling from his wife.
2: A Bill Greenfield story called How Bill Greenfield's Wife Taught Him a Thing or Two from an Adirondack tall tale teller, Joseph Bruschak, who's been telling stories and writing books for decades and decades. We're going to wrap up today speaking of tall tale characters with a story called Paula Bunyan, A True Story. But is it? You're going to hear from Joel Ben Izzy. We'll wrap up with this tale today on The Appleseed. <laughs>
6: I want to tell you guys a, a completely, absolutely true story. Well, it's true except for one small part. I'm going to tell you the story, and at the end, you see if you can figure out which part isn't true. You guys heard of Paul Bunyan? Yeah! All right, but you know, I am in the business of telling true stories, and I want to tell you a true story. And when it comes to Paul Bunyan, history has gotten everything completely wrong. Now, I know you're going to say this is some crazy theory, like the idea that Shakespeare's plays weren't written by Shakespeare, but by some other guy with the same name. But this is different because history has been horribly inaccurate with regards to Paul Bunyan. History's gotten everything wrong, even the name. Her name wasn't Paul. Her name was Paula. These things happen in translation. She lived here in Berkeley in the latter part of her life. She started the first natural food store on Telegraph about the turn of the century. Paula Bunyan, interesting character. She was big, but not as big as they say. They say the earth shook when she walked. It didn't shake all the time, not when she tiptoed. And she was no bigger than me, than I am standing here before you now. I'm six feet. She was no bigger than that when she was born. She was, however, a gardener. And that's the other thing. History will tell you that she's a lumberjack. No, she wasn't a lumberjack. Paula Bunyan was a gardener. Organic farming was her business. She came from Minnesota. She said the land there was great. And in fact, they say even today that there are some places that the land is so good that if you stand in one place too long, your feet will take root in the ground. And one day she was digging a hole in the ground to plant something, plant some corn, and her friend Ole came up and said, Paula, is this good ground here? She said, hmm, yep, yep, it's good ground. How good is it? Funny you should ask. She dug a hole. It was about 50 feet down. She took a kernel of corn. Pew! dropped it to the bottom of that hole. She put dirt on that hole and she said, Ole, if you come here this time tomorrow, you're going to see a little corn plant growing right there where I planted that corn seed. Ole said, that's impossible, Paula, by tomorrow? By tomorrow, right here. They turned to go, but suddenly there was a shaking in the ground and a huge crack appeared right where they were walking. They looked back to where that seed had been planted and where that seed had been planted in the ground from that very spot. a plant was shooting up through the air. They'd never seen anything like it. They gathered around to watch in amazement. Within one minute, that thing was as tall as Paula. Within two minutes, that thing had grown so tall that it got up to the sky, split a cloud, and half the rain came down, made it grow faster and further. Within three minutes, it had grown so fast and so tall that it got up in the air, knocked an eagle out of the sky, and Paula felt terrible about that. Ole said, Paula, we better do something. Paula said, you're right, you're right. Better chop it down. Much as she hated to do it, she said, better chop it down or it's going to get up there to the top of the sky, poke a hole in the ozone layer, and let all the air out. She took her best axe. She went to chop it. The axe stuck in the corn stalk as the corn stalk was growing up. By the time she realized what was happening, she went to reach it. She couldn't reach it. She tried another and another and another. She didn't want to waste axes. So she said, we'd better saw this thing down. So she called her friend Halfway Hank. She knew when she needed help. Halfway Hank was the fastest sawer in the world. You know how fast he was? How fast was he? It's funny you should ask. He was so fast that he had accidentally sawed himself in half. Now he had one arm, one leg, and a twin brother. And he came up and said, Hey, Paul, you know what I saw? What? I saw anything. I'm fast. What do you want? Could you cut down this corn stalk? Sure, no problem. Halfway Hank, the fastest star in the world, went to saw through this corn stalk, and as he went to saw through the corn stalk, the corn stalk carried him way up high in the air. He was gone. Hank had gone so far so fast that by the time Paula called out, Are you okay, Hank? It took 20 minutes for the words to get up to Hank. Hank called out, I'm okay, but I don't know how I'm going to get back down. It took 30 minutes for the words to get back to Paula. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they stopped for their coffee break. At the end of the coffee break, they heard something, and that's what worried them. They heard a sound like this. Another one like this. Then it sounded like this. Suddenly there was silence and all around there was this fluffy white stuff falling. It was popcorn. The corn had grown too near to the sun and began to pop but the animals didn't know that. They thought it was snow and they began to freeze to death. That began the great frozen foods industry of Minnesota. Paula thought fast. She walked over to Wyoming, which you'll notice is a square state. She picked it up. She placed it right there on the Canadian border, went down to Texas, set up a movie projector to show a movie up there on Wyoming. People came to watch the movie, and while they watched the movie, what did they do? They ate popcorn. That's right. They ate popcorn. That took care of the popcorn, but the cornstalk was growing faster and faster and taller and taller. Now, she knew she needed help, so she called for her blue ox. What was the ox's name? Dave. And she called out, Babe. Babe Babe was down there in Louisiana working on the railroad. She had one of those long rails tied to her tail. And she walked right up north, straight from Louisiana up to Minnesota. That rail gouged a huge track in the ground. When she got to Lake Superior, it popped the lake. That track filled with water. That became what we would call the Mississippi River. Now, as Paula took that rail, she said that's the perfect thing. She wrapped it around that cornstalk. She wrapped it so tight, tied it so tightly that that cornstalk grew and grew bigger and faster. And as it grew bigger and faster, it didn't grow where that rail was and began to slice right through itself. When it sliced through itself, that thing started to fall. When that thing started to fall, Paula called out, Timber. That thing fell so far because it was so tall. You know how tall it was? How tall it was? Funny you should ask. It was so tall that it started falling on a Monday. By Tuesday, it was still falling. Wednesday, still falling. Thursday, Friday, still falling. When it landed, the very tip of it hit San Francisco so hard. What? You guys have heard of the great earthquake of 1906? that's what caused it. Very tip of that stretch from the East Bay here over to San Francisco, Paula came to see what had happened. It turned out the people there asked her, they said, hey, could you leave this here? She said, what? I was just going to clean it up. They said, no, no. We need this. It works like a bridge. So Paula carved it out, formed it, shaped it into a bridge, named the bridge after her own ox. What's that bridge called? the Bay Bridge. You can go on the Bay Bridge. You can go there, and if you do, like I did this morning, go to that lane with a long line in it. You're going to notice the lanes have numbers. One lane is number seven and a half. That is the lane to go through, because there you will see somebody who I saw this morning. Someone with one arm, one leg, and if you have a half a minute, Halfway Hank, who is there to this day, will tell you this story. And the most amazing thing is, he'll only charge you half a dollar. That's is the story of Paula Bunyan and the cornstalk. And let me ask you a question. I told you guys this was a true story, except for one thing. Which part? That
3: halfway hay was
6: cut in half. Not quite.
3: Um, It fell from Minnesota to San
6: Francisco. Close, but not quite. And?
3: The cornstalk fell for more than four days.
6: Very close. These are all close, but not quite. Nope. Remember at the beginning I said this is a true story? That part was a lie. I gotta say, you guys have been a great group. Go out there and have fun, but remember these words don't believe everything you hear, just what you hear from me. Thanks.
2: Joel Ben Izzy with a story that he calls Paula Bunyan, A True Story. But is it? Well, you could judge for yourself, of course. Before that, of course, you heard from Joseph Bruchek with how Bill Greenfield's wife taught him a thing or two, a tall tale from the Adirondack Mountains. Death in the Nut, before that, a a story with many versions. That one told for you by Richard Martin. And at the top of the hour, The Invisible Boy, a version of the Cinderella story told for you by Stephanie Benito. This hour was written by Samantha Daines, Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed.
3: Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed.
0: The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.